Well, good morning and hello. It's uh, fantastic to be back with you. As uh, Jake said, my name is Jonathan Wolfgang. I'm one of the pastors over at North Shore, which for those of you who uh, may or may not know, is, was one of the churches that was part of helping uh, launch Arbor. And we are so incredibly proud and excited to see what is going on over at this place. And I jump at any opportunity my schedule will allow when Jake asks to come back over and speak. Um, and uh, it's nice to be here uh, again with you guys this morning. As Jake referenced, last time I was here in December, and the last time I was here, all of these lovely logs had snow on them. So I was delighted when I came in to see no snow today. I wasn't sure if there'd be like little birds nestled in between them or something <laughs> symbolizing spring. But uh, this by far has the coolest backdrop of any church in America, all right? So I am so excited uh, again to be with you guys. And uh, it's a cool thing to be invited to speak somewhere once, but it's really cool to be invited twice. So, uh, so I'm really honored and uh, excited about the chance to be over here and also excited because of what Jake asked me to talk about today. Um, one of the things is I know there was a lot of praying and thinking about what's gonna be the unique uh, fingerprint or DNA of Arbor. What, why is it that God wants another church in this community? What is the unique contribution or flavor or culture he wants to bring into this area through this specific community of people? And that emphasis from the beginning of making disciples together, that idea of living as authentic followers of Jesus, challenging each other to learn and grow, to really live this stuff, not just go through the motions or say the right words, but to really live after this model of a way of life that Jesus shows us, and to do that together, not just on our own, and to see how that's been playing out has been fantastic. But then when earlier in the year, just around uh, the uh, beginning of, uh, of this year in January, when Jake emailed again and asked, hey, would you come over and speak? Here's a date I'm thinking. I asked, well, what's the series? What are you talking about? Well, we've been thinking about sort of a theme for what God wants to do in this season of Arbor, what it is he's looking to have from us. And we're really finding ourselves drawn to this theme of helping the hurting to be the kind of place who has the sort of tender, compassionate heart that we see so clearly in the life of Jesus and to actually see how God might want to use that sort of compassionate focus and emphasis to make an impact in the lives of the people around us, whether we know them or we don't. And it was so exciting to hear about that. I was so eager to have the chance to come over um, and talk, especially about something that is so close to the heart of Jesus. I mean, no matter where you're at spiritually, if you know anything about Jesus, one of the things that is the most well-known of him is this incredible, compassionate heart, this extraordinary way that he interacted with people um, who in so many other circles would never associate with him because of who he was, but who intentionally went out of his way to build bridges into lives that were very different from his, that had deep wounds and pains, that's one of the clearest, clearest distinctives of who Jesus was. And so challenging each other, learning together how to actually do that, to carry out that same kind of mission. Um, this tenderness that we see in Jesus, it's captured in one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In fact, Jake and I were talking about this before the service. It's one of his favorites as well. And uh, it's a promise about a coming one, a Messiah who would come, who of course Jesus fulfills this. It's a promise made in the book of Isaiah, but fulfilled and attributed, attached to Jesus and his ministry in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. Here's what he writes. It says, uh, the, the prophet wrote, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
till he has brought justice through mercy. There's a strength, there's a firmness about Jesus, but there's a tenderness, there's a sweetness about this God that I think is painted so vividly in these words. This, even when you're bruised, even when the challenges of life knock you down, instead of just discarding you, instead of just trampling you underfoot, this, this God is so tender, so concerned, that he'll even shield and protect that little reed that's been cracked, that's been broken off. He'll care for that. Or that image of a wick, just that little glow That's all that's left because the winds of life have come in. They've been too intense. They've begun to extinguish the passion, the fire, the intensity. Just a little glow is all that's left in that wick. And instead of blowing it out and moving to the next candle, what does it say this this Messiah will do? He'll wrap his hands, I picture, around that little wick, shield it from any more harm so that it can recover a bit, maybe begin to rebuild and grow so that eventually it bursts back into flame as it was intended to be. That incredible picture of this Jesus who is all about this kind of work, being caring in those circumstances. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out until it's all made right, until justice is done. And when a group of people decide that they want to live the same way, with that kind of compassion, that kind of care for those that are wounding, are wounded, with a hopeful confidence that healing is possible and one day it will all be made right. All of these hurts will be healed. All these things will be restored. That's an amazing thing. And as someone who lives in this area, I live over at Thrasher's Corner, the fact that there's another community of people like Arbor who are giving themselves to living this kind of life, to helping those that are hurting, it makes me glad to live here. To know there are others on this same mission to want to touch lives, to give themselves to this sort of cause and purpose. That's the dream. That's the mission. And what I love about it is that any of us can do this. Any of us can do this. Sometimes churches have these very dramatic visions, very complicated strategies and big charts and so forth. And there's a place for that kind of planning and thinking and so forth. That's great. But sometimes it can feel a little daunting. Like, don't you understand? I've got all these pressures. I've got all these worries. I've got bills and work and family and stress and sickness and broken NCAA brackets. I got problems. Don't add change the world today onto my to-do list, all right? How in the world am I going to do that? I can barely keep my head above water as it is. But this simple call, this simple challenge to in our ordinary lives, in our everyday existence, to be the kind of people who are helping the hurting. Because friends, we all know this. No matter how beautiful they may look, how together they may look, everybody's hurting. Under the surface, everybody's carrying some wounds, some pain. And I know you've been talking about what some of those wounds look like. A few weeks ago, Jake spoke painfully, personally qualified to do so about the idea of helping the grieving and walking with them through difficult things. And last week, I know Garrett sat down with some others here from the Arbor family who've, who've figured out what it looks like to find healing from addiction with God's power. There are people grieving all around us. There are people addicted all around us. And no matter how together they may look, we all know So many people are wrestling with so many kinds of hurts. They come in many shapes and sizes. 
Some people struggling with wounds because of regrets that they have. Things from the past. Some who find themselves struggling because they're just overwhelmed by the pressures of life and it's just too much to handle. Some hurting because of this deep sense of loneliness or fear about what the future might hold. They come in all shapes and sizes. And of course, as we're talking about today, there are of course those who are hurting deeply because they have not yet experienced the hope, the purpose, the love of God through Jesus. The lost. Those that are far from God. So many in our community carrying that kind of wound. They just don't know how deeply this God loves them. They don't understand how deeply they're treasured and how healing it is to be loved unconditionally by the God who knows everything about them and wants to be close to them. A friend of mine, he says, early in my ministry, he said, Jonathan Wolfgang, always speak to broken hearts and you'll always have an audience because all around us are broken hearts, and one way or another. And helping the hurting all around us can make such a difference, make such an impact, can transform people. And I pray that God helps many people find the help and healing that he wants to give through what's happening, of course, here at Arbor. But what I want to remind you of in the time that I have with you today is is two things. One, this simple mission, this helping the hurting, specifically those that are lost, It is far harder than you actually think it is, and it's actually far easier than you think it is. And that's what I want to talk about. First, this mission to bring hope and healing to those who need to know Jesus, the lost, it's harder than you think. You think, I already thought it was pretty hard, right? I mean, talking about my faith with other people, that seems a bit daunting, a little overwhelming. I'm afraid how they'll respond. I know in some professional environments that can have serious career consequences. This is not an easy thing, Wolfgang. I get it. It's actually much harder than you think it is. Think of it this way. Have you ever been in a place where you were so desperate that you needed a miracle? Something was going on in your life that you were so up against it that you had no option than to fall on your face and plead with God for a miracle. Have you ever been that there? Maybe it was in the midst of some sort of medical situation. Some of you have been there where you, you get bad news from that doctor and you're praying something will change. You need God to step in to bring healing and you are on your face just begging God for a miracle. Or maybe it's financial. Maybe you have no idea how you're going to make ends meet. You're not sure how you're going to stay in the house or how you're going to put food on the table. Maybe jobs are hard to find and you are face down. God, please, Lord, unless you show up, unless you do something supernatural, we're in trouble. I don't know what's going to happen. We need a miracle, Lord. Or maybe it's in a relationship. I remember a few years into my marriage, my wife Lori and I, we went through a really, really hard time. And there was one night in particular that I really thought that our marriage um, might be over. And it was all her fault. But no, no, I'm kidding. It wasn't her fault at all, actually. She's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) Truth is, it was pretty much all my fault. And uh, it's a long story, but I had brought some baggage into our marriage that was causing some serious problems if left unresolved. And I remember one night, sincerely, I mean, I was away, we're... I'm working at a church staff. We were at a conference in California and she was living in Nevada at the time. And I remember that night, she's still back in Nevada. I'm out in California, having gotten off the phone with her, thinking that might be it. This might be the end of my marriage. I don't know what this is going to mean. I don't know what's going to happen. And I remember that night 
praying with a passion that I typically don't pray with. God, you gotta step in here. I don't know what to do, I need you. Unless your power steps in, unless you can bring healing in the middle of all this, I don't know what's gonna happen. Please save my marriage. And I thank God that he did, he answered that prayer. And it was a process and there was a lot of grace and a lot of counseling and a lot of work, but God showed up in a supernatural way to bring healing and take us to a place of intimacy and connection that's so much richer than we had experienced to that point. This fall we'll celebrate 22 years of being married. But it took a miracle, it took a miracle. Friends, when it helps, when it comes to helping people find new life and healing in Jesus, when it comes to really reaching those that are lost, what we're asking for is a miracle. And we don't always think of it in those terms. We just think of it, maybe there's some strategy, maybe I'll just go out, I need to have my quick answers, some little model or some picture I'll draw on a napkin. Those things all have their place. But the descriptions that the Bible uses of people who have yet to meet Jesus are far more intense than just metaphors of pain and hurting. Think about it. The Bible uses imageries like them being deaf or people being blind. It even refers to those far from God as dead, which of course would make you deaf and blind too, kind of thrown in for good measure. Just this example from Paul in Ephesians 2, he says, as for you before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. It takes supernatural intervention for this transformation to take place. What we're talking about is the need for a miracle. It'd be like healing the blind. It's like raising the dead. It is harder than we think. Think about this for just a minute. If I told you that the task that God was giving us or the task that God has specifically given you was to go to a local cemetery and to raise someone from the dead, what would you do? We're not not asking for a mass revival, just one, right? Just get one. What would you do? Who would you bring with you? What would your plan be? That's my calling, I hear you God. You want me to bring somebody back from the dead. Who would you take with you? Would you find a really great communicator? They're a very moving speaker to stand at the grave and move the people out of the hole. Would that work? Would you piece together a spectacular band? Would you make an awesome backdrop, right? (laughs) Again, these are all wonderful things. But what would you do? You'd pull together the people you know who are most intimately connected with God, the people who are authentically living in a relationship with him, and you'd be on your face, wouldn't you? God, there's not a snowball's chance in the hot place that this is gonna work unless you show up, unless you do something miraculous, God. And so before I go use my strategy or I unleash my cool band or whatever it may be. Lord, I begin on my face. If you don't show up supernaturally, if there's not a miracle, this will never happen. Jesus is talking about this. What it takes for someone to come to the place of believing in him. And look at what he says about it. In John 6, verse 63, the first part of the verse, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What we're talking about here requires a miracle. It requires some kind of supernatural intervention. It's more than just a bad person becoming good. 
or an addict breaking a habit. This is about a dead person coming back to life. And if your assignment was to go to a cemetery and bring someone out of the grave, there's nothing you could do to make that happen in your flesh, in your own strength. No strategy, no book. You know it has to begin with you on your face asking God for a miracle. And friends, in order for the people of our world, our friends, our family members, the people we love, those that are hurting all around us, it's going to take a miracle. This is much harder than you think it is. Far too hard for any of us. But not too hard for God. When it comes to thinking of these terms of pulling together now people who have authentic relationship with him, people who will fall on their knees and beg God, please, Lord, you've got to move. You've got to do something, Lord. You've got to step in miraculously. There's nothing we can do on our own. We need you. I'm reminded of verses like ones that we sometimes quote, but don't think about through these lenses. In John 15, for instance, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the key to all of this isn't some clever technique or brilliant strategy. It's acknowledging our need for a miracle from God. For us to live with the kind of selfless compassion that cares about the grieving or reaches out to the addicted or gives a rip, really, about the lost in order to break the selfishness that's so deep in my heart and in many of yours, if you'll be honest about it, in order for that to begin to change, it takes a miracle to have our hearts broken in the same way that Jesus' heart was broken. It goes much deeper than trying to be a nice person and looking for chances to share your faith. It takes a miracle. Outside of his power, we don't stand a chance. And if people are going to respond, it's going to be because something miraculous happened. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So let me begin by asking, are you praying for those kinds of miracles? Do you really believe they could happen? I know a pastor who was speaking at a conference uh, one time overseas and a large group of local pastors had come, were part of this conference, and one of the pastors who was in attendance heard that uh, someone had died back in his home church, back in his village, which was several hours away, and he came, uh, having to leave very abruptly, he came, uh, spoke to this guy that I know that was kind of leading this conference and said, um, I'm very sorry, thank you so much for what you've been teaching us, I wish I could be here the rest of the time, but I have to hurry back to my village as quickly as possible, someone in our church has passed away. And this pastor, the speaker, the one that was there to do the conference, he said, oh, certainly, pastor, I understand. I know you need to go back and give comfort and peace to that family. And the local pastor looked at him kind of quizzically. He said, no, 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 no. I have to hurry back and see if God wants to raise the man from the dead. Just this expectation. Maybe God wants to do a miracle. I don't want to be late. I need to get there right away. It's a completely different lens than I think of things. Expecting miraculous power, hoping the Spirit will move. Do you pray for those kinds of miracles? Do you actually expect and believe they could happen? Because what this world needs is miracles. For you to live generously in a world that is driven by greed, that takes a miracle for it to be sincere. To be compassionate in a world that teaches you you should look out for yourself because no one else will, that takes a miracle. To genuinely help those who are hurting when the world says it could get messy, you don't have time for this, you've got enough worries in your own life. 
Friends, to have a heart that's open to that is a miraculous thing. Are you asking for that heart? There are things that flow from being authentically connected to the vine. These things just come from us if we're really connected to the source, allowing the fruit of compassion to flow out of us instead of trying to manufacture it with three easy steps. It begins with us on our faces to the ground saying, God, help us. Help us see the people around us. Break our hearts for their hurts. Move miraculously to heal hurts. Bring dead people back to life. Show your power, just like you did through your son, Jesus. Listen to this promise from John 14. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Jesus did some pretty great stuff. His promise, you'll do even greater things through this spirit, because I'm going to the Father, he says. Verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, this simple mission, helping the hurting, it's harder than we think. It needs a miracle. So let me ask you, what would it look like each day to begin your morning asking God for a miracle like this each day? To admit that without his supernatural power, we can't do anything, at least nothing that really matters to live mindful of our dependence on him. You see, living a life of helping the hurting, it's harder than you think. But then again, it's also easier. Because we hear a phrase like helping the hurting and we think we need to develop a bunch of strategies, a bunch of programs, how to make that happen. We gotta develop some complex flow chart and training system so that they will be able to do this in their ordinary lives. And people try to do it in different ways. There's a place for that, I guess. Plans and strategies have a place. But sometimes we just make it too complicated. Sometimes the simplest ministry is right in front of us. I've been very blessed over the course of now 20 years as a pastor um, in some pretty cool places and serve in some exciting churches. Right out of Bible college, graduated from a little school in East Tennessee, moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, which was a bit of a culture shift, you might expect but an amazing experience. Spent eight years there seeing God do things that I had studied in class and read in the book, but never seen really firsthand. Transformations I'll never forget. People like my friend Sean, who his whole life had struggled with addiction. I'll never forget that day when he came into my office with a bag in his hand, and he sat down at my desk and laid that bag on my desk, and I pulled it open only to discover his entire collection of drugs and related paraphernalia. I thought, I'd rather not have this in my office, actually. So let's go ahead and smash this and then head to the toilet and send it to where it needs to go, right? But to see the change, to see him step into engagement, to have a heart for others who are struggling with addiction, and to see God use him to transform other lives, I'll never forget it. Friends like a girl named Sandra who worked, the euphemism is, at a gentleman's club. It's a dancer. She'd come to our young adult ministry every single week and then she'd go dance at the clubs afterwards. And watching that process of her coming out of a life where money was just in mountains, where she even had started to supplement her income with some prostitution on the side. And to see her begin to be transformed, to see her begin to experience the pure love of a God who looked at her not on how she looked, but for who she was. 
to find out there were men and other people who would look at her, not for how she looked, as an object to be used for gratification, but as a person to be loved and cared for with tenderness. To see the transformation that brought in her life, I will never forget. I loved watching life change in that place. And then after that, I went to Cincinnati. And we converted an old movie theater to church building. And again, we saw lives continue to change. Kind of got a reputation as a church for people who don't like church. People that didn't feel like they fit in the whole Midwestern church vibe began to find a place of community and hope. And again, story after story of marriages and lives that were changed. Time prevents me from giving you tons of examples, but unforgettable moments. And of course, over at North Shore, seeing a church, such a heart to plant churches and to continue to expand that impact through churches like Arbor and Imprint and other places that are continuing to do things in our community, meeting needs here and all around the world with this incredibly, a growing heart for people who are far from God. I've gotten to be part of some pretty cool ministries. I'm very grateful for that. But my favorite ministry I ever had actually came right after I left my church in Cincinnati and before I moved out here to Seattle. At that point, I, uh, I was pretty worn out. And for six months, I wore one of these to work. Some of you recognize this, either because you've worn one or you look at one most days, right? That's a long story. I was pretty crispy, pretty burned out from my last ministry experience. That's a whole other conversation. So I hung up my little ear microphone as a speaker and I put on one of these. They even embroidered my name on it. Wasn't that fancy? Anybody worked at Starbucks at some point? Yeah, I'm sure there's quite a few sort of green apron folks around. Yeah, absolutely. I worked specifically at a mall store, which is about as close to hell as I ever want to get, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Especially on Frappuccino week, all those teenagers. Oh my goodness. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But. but for all the challenges that went with working there, I will say, I loved that ministry. And I worked with some of the most fascinating people. I worked with a kid named Matt, who was an incredibly gifted bass player, but basically worked there for drug money. He lived off his gigs, and anything he made through tips or pay there at Starbucks was either, it was ingested in a number of forms, let's put it that way, all right? And another girl named Jess, who had been in and out of this abusive relationship where sometimes she would come in with long sleeves because she had bruises, Another girl that I worked with named Laura, hardcore yoga girl. She sort of floated off the ground. She was sort of a unique character, as you can imagine. There was Megan. She actually had grown up the daughter of a pastor, but had been so turned off by the hypocrisy she saw in the church that she'd become a Buddhist. And one moment in particular that I will never forget, uh, one of the shift managers that I work with, um, I'll call her Amanda, because her name was Amanda, um, anyway, she'd worked there for years, and uh, her life, pretty typical rhythm for her, was she'd come, she'd work, and she'd go out with friends afterwards and drink and hang out and kind of have fun. Incredibly honest person, just raw. What you saw was what you get, my favorite kind of people. And uh, she'd grown up Jehovah's Witness, even still considered herself one, but... Uh, but faith was not a regular part of, our, of her life. Let's just put it that way. And one night, as we were working together, I could tell she was upset. She 
the whole shift just was not herself. And we were just so busy that night, we never got the chance to talk. And so finally, she and I were closing. Finally, after we pulled down the little gate, you know, the mall, started to clean up and sweep, I asked, Amanda, you seem, something's up, what's going on? And almost immediately, tears erupt from her eyes. And she, through her sobs, began to tell me what was going on. She said, uh, that guy I've been dating, and I knew she'd been dating this guy down the, down the mall hallway at the T-Mobile kiosk. <laughs> and they'd been on and off. It was not a good relationship. He cheated, her, cheated on her almost routinely, but she couldn't stop going back. Well, she was terrified because her period was late. And she was afraid she was pregnant. And she had no idea what she was going to do. And she wasn't in a place where she could have a baby, obviously. This person was certainly not going to be a great father or provider in their lives. And she just kept crying. She started to tell me that she basically grew up in that kind of family. Her parents had never been married. She barely knew her dad. And she'd sworn she was never going to get caught in that same cycle. And yet here she was. She didn't know what to do. She, she just needed somebody to listen to her. And, uh, and I just simply asked, Amanda, I know this may feel weird. Can I pray for you? And she knew my background. She knew what I'd done. She said, sure. And in that moment, it hit me. It hit me. Do you know what? Amanda probably never would have talked to Pastor Jonathan, Pastor Wolfgang. But barista Jonathan, whole different animal. And I was able to be there for her, to pray for her, to let her know that somebody cared, that no matter what happened, there were people that would stand with her. And I'd love to be able to tell you that that night she fell on her knees and accepted Jesus. She didn't. Sometimes there are those sort of movie-ending stories. This isn't one of them. And in case you're wondering, she wasn't pregnant. And she finally broke it off with that guy, which I saw as answered prayer, near miraculous. And since then, she's in a much healthier relationship, even though I haven't seen her in almost seven years. We stay in touch on Facebook. Literally last month, I got a message from her. Just checking in. See, helping the hurting isn't reserved for the professionals. And quite frankly, sometimes we're the least qualified to do it. Most often it happens the impact of ordinary people who aren't just being nice or saying kind things because they're being paid to be nice. You've heard the old saying, they pay me to be good, you're good for nothing. Right? You've heard that saying? <laughs> Sometimes when there's just people who love because they love. Sometimes that does far more than any speaker, than any pastor, than any strategy, than any band. Sometimes those are the transformational, miraculous moments when you're just willing to be that person. Because they may not respond to Pastor Wolfgang or Pastor Jake or Pastor Garrett, but there are plenty of people who will get to know Programmer Tim and Mom Next Door Jennifer and Guy Down the Street Mike Manager Sue, coworker Jeff, you get the point. That's your mission field. And you are perfectly designed to serve God there. 
to approach that role, whatever it is, through this lens in Colossians 3, when Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, at Starbucks, do it all in the name of Jesus, reflecting his heart, pointing to his power. It begins by asking God to raise people from the dead, to live in an authentic connection with him, So when those moments come, because you all know an Amanda, you all know a Matt, you all know a Megan, you all know a Jess, I could give you those lists. You know those people. To allow God to bring healing through you. Sometimes it's as simple as offering to pray, and it opens a door that can lead to even greater places, even more miraculous things. Jesus is still in the healing business, friends, and he's invited you into that work. What I want to do is end with a story that I read several years ago, and it's a bit long, so I hope you'll indulge me, but it's written by a pastor named Walter Wanegren. It's a picture that was painted for me that I have never forgotten, and I hope it'll stick with you as well. Here's what he wrote. He said, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags. The air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him, my curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, signing and shredding a thousand tears, sighing and shredding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, he cried, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. 
The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket. Flat. The cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman only had one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick. He took the blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and there he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I need to see where he's going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and I waited to help him in what, what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill, with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on the handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who had no hope. Because I don't have the last page. <laughs> it's sitting back there. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <laughs> Intermission. <laughs> He's crying. I'd come to love the rag man. And there's my note. God just gave it back. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light, slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. No sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags he'd gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all I had seen, I walked myself up to the ragman. 
I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The rag man. The Christ. Has he taken your rags? Do you have a story to tell? Do you know people who need his touch? That's what Jesus is all about. And he's invited you to be part of it. And just like some people won't talk to Pastor Jonathan, but maybe they will barista Jonathan. There are lots of folks who couldn't handle cosmic creator of the universe, Jesus. And so he just came as guy. As person. Human. Hoping, hoping that in those moments, as many of us have already done, people would just cry out to him and allow him to heal them. And you get to be part of that. So I urge you, pray for miracles, friends. Authentically connect. Bring your rags to this rag man. And then join him in his motley parade of people who walk the streets looking for people who might need healed. Carry one another's burdens, Paul says, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ.